You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. View of our text of this afternoon, which is Lord's Day 44, let us turn to the Holy Scriptures. We turn to Romans chapter 7, the verses 7 to 25, which represents one of the most controversial passages even today, in all of Holy Scripture. And there the Apostle Paul writes, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Let us turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 44. What does the Tenth Commandment require of us that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart? Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. 
But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest men have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly first? So that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. And second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it's hard to get them all right. When you have to explain and apply Ten Commandments, then it's not easy to do a good job on each and every one of them. Yes, and up until now, the Heidelberg Catechism has done, I dare say, a good job. It has understood the thrust of every commandment. It has hit on all of the key elements. It is balanced by stressing both the negative and the positive side of each particular precept. In short, the catechism is to be commended thus far. But now we come to the tenth commandment, the last commandment, and here things sort of fall apart. No, not completely, but mostly so. For look at answer... 113. It doesn't really explain this commandment at all. First, it speaks about all of the commandments by stating that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. In the first part of its answer, the Catechism explains the tenth commandment as if it were a kind of catch-all commandment. If anything's been forgotten, we'll catch it now. And when we turn to the second part of its answer, we see that things do not get much better. For there it generalizes again when it says, with all our heart we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. Notice that not once does the catechism say anything directly about coveting. It neither brings out the negative nor stresses the positive of this commandment. It seems content, you might say, to supply us with a a non-answer. Now, it can be that some of you are thinking that I am being far too critical and attacking your beloved Heidelberger. Well, let me be clear. I've always loved the Heidelberg Catechism, and I still do. I think, as a matter of fact, that it's the best catechism in all the world. But at the same time, I'm not prepared to say to you that's on the same level as Holy Scripture itself, and that as a result, it's either inspired or inerrant or both. Here and there, it does that is down. 
And such is the case with its explanation of the tenth commandment. So what shall we do? Set it aside? Dismiss it? Look elsewhere? Well, I, I tried that. I went to good old Martin Luther, and I had a look at his small, his famous small catechism, but you know, that didn't inspire me either, for what Luther does is divide the tenth commandment into two, and he makes it into the ninth and into the tenth commandment. He has to do this because he combined the first two, so he's one short. The words of the ninth commandment are then, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And he explains these words by saying, we should fear and love God, and so we should not tell lies about our neighbor, nor betray, slander, or defame him, but should apologize for him, speak well of him, and interpret charitably all that he does. You know, I thought the commandment was about coveting, but Luther explains it in the sense that it's all about bearing false witness. And as for the tenth commandment, it consists in the words Luther says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And about these words he says, we should fear and love God, and so we should not abduct, estrange, or entice away our neighbor's wife, servants, cattle, but encourage them to remain and discharge their duty to him. Interesting. It can be said that he does a better job on the second part than he does on the first. However, overall, even Luther's answer leaves a lot to be desired. But then if Martin Luther comes up short, what about John Calvin? Well, in his Genevan Catechism, the wise man of Geneva says, among other things, that this commandment condemns vicious desires which tickle and solicit the heart of man. Well, with all due respects to the great reformer, his answer doesn't thrill me either. And by the way, neither did anything else that I found. I looked hither and yon, and in the end I came to the conclusion that I have yet to come across a satisfying explanation of the tenth commandment. It would appear that this part of God's law is notoriously hard to explain as well as to apply. So what should we do? Perhaps the best thing to do is simply to go back to the Heidelberger and bear patiently with its weaknesses. We need to admit that in spite of all of its great answers, it's not perfect. And something else too, when we do come across weaknesses we should simply turn back to the origin and the basis of the Heidelberg Catechism and try to correct whatever we deem to be insufficient. And hence, this afternoon, we turn back to the Word. Back, you could say, to the basics. And when we turn back to the basics, what do we see? 
Beloved, I preach to you on the following theme. We see that the tenth commandment goes deep, far, and up. It goes deep into our hearts. It ranges far over all of our lives. And it drives us up to Christ our Lord. Well, beloved, when we come to the Tenth Commandment of the Law of God, we are reminded once again that unlike all other laws, the Law of God is unique. In what way is it unique? Well, partly it resides in the fact that all other laws and moral codes simply apply to the outside, the external side of life. What they are after is outward conformity. What they demand is open and external obedience. And you know, when you think of it, that's not so surprising. Do we not do the very same thing? For example, as parents, sometimes all that we look for in our children is that they obey the rules of the house. You know, as long as they come in on time, watch their language, spend their money wisely, engage in healthy relationship, show us some respect, we're satisfied. And sometimes we're even more than satisfied. As a parent, we begin to gloat and we say to ourselves, at least my children obey me and heed what I tell them. So what's happening here? We equate outer conformity with true obedience. External performance must stand for inner acceptance. But if that is what we think, then we need to reflect on what God the Father is saying here in the Tenth Commandment. For really, what he is saying is that there is more to obedience than what we hear or see or are told. Obedience is more than simply a matter of saying the right words, doing the right things, going through the right motions. Real obedience is first and foremost a matter of the heart. True obedience comes from a committed heart. And then demonstrates itself in concrete deeds. It comes, in other words, from the inside and shows itself on the outside. Yes, and because of this, beloved, you can say God gives us the tenth commandment. Its key word is the word covet or coveting. And what is coveting? Is it something that we do with our hands or with our lips? Or with our bodies? I don't think so, and neither do you, right? Coveting, that gets us into the whole world of desires and longings and lusts. More specifically, it's about desires and longings that have gone astray. That are evil. That violate God's will. And damage the life of our neighbor. Coveting is something, in other words, that goes on deep inside us, in our hearts. 
where no one can see. But God can see. Nothing is hidden from Him. He sees what we do, even when we do it in secret. He sees it well, everything that goes on in our hearts. As the psalmist reminds us, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Yes, and because God sees deeply, His law also goes deeply. As I said, all other laws are for the externals of life. All other legal codes are surface codes. All other moral laws fail to get beneath the surface. Only our God and His law of the Tenth Commandment does more. In short, you can say that our God wants the obedience of our entire, complete, whole person. As He wants all of our love, body, soul, heart, and mind, and strength, so He wants all of your life. And indeed, beloved, this also explains that very first test that He handed out to Adam, or to man, You remember he says to Adam and Eve, you are free to eat from every or any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. You know, when you first read that, you think to yourself, that's easy. Just leave that one tree alone and concentrate on all the other fruit trees in the garden. Simple. In short, this is an easy test. It should have been passed with flying colors. But nevertheless, Adam and Eve, they failed it. What went wrong? Where did things go wrong? Well, you can say again, things went wrong in their hearts. For when they looked at that tree, their hearts began to churn. And the more that they looked at it, the more furious the churning of their hearts became. And then the devil comes along and he applies some more fuel to the fire. He does that especially by saying, Oh, this is God's way of keeping you people small and insignificant. And who wants to be small and insignificant? Not Adam, not Eve, not you and I. And so they decide to give free reign to their hearts. What happened in Eden long ago was really a case of heart failure. Simply and clearly, God put the hearts of His children to the test and they both had a heart attack. And it's been happening ever since. Sometime after their expulsion from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had children. And among those children, Cain rose up and murdered his brother Abel. Why did he do so? Because his heart was evil. 
And later still, God comes to the awful decision to send a flood upon the earth. And why did he do so? What prompted him? Read the remarkable words of Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You see, again, God looked deeper. He looked beyond the violence. And what did he see? He saw polluted hearts everywhere. He saw a heart-diseased human race. And that interesting, too, is what the next verse reveals about God when it says, and his heart was filled with pain. The hearts of men are filled with violence. And as a result, the heart of God is filled with pain. Kind of a devastating picture, right? Yes, and as mankind has had heart disease ever since, so God has had heart pains. Why, even his covenant people cause him heart pains. Why do the Israelites tax his patience so often and violate his will with such abandon? And why do kings and priests and prophets fall so frequently and experience his displeasure and judgment? Think of David and Ahab and Abiram and Nadab. And why do we today so often fall short of the mark in so many ways? And indeed every day. Beloved, it has to do with our hearts. The Lord Jesus himself remarks, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, False testimony, slander. And so, beloved, what is the first thing that the Tenth Commandment teaches us? Surely it's this. It teaches us to look deeper. It teaches us to look deeper at ourselves, deeper at others, deeper even at our children, if we have them. Indeed, every parent should try to engage his children at a heart level. And why else do you think that there are so many references to the heart in the book of Proverbs? My son, apply your heart to understanding. Wisdom will enter into your heart. Keep your commandments in my heart. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Indeed, sometimes it's instructive to go through this particular book of the Bible and circle every time the word heart comes up. It'll show you that what God wants is a right obedience that comes from a right heart. 
then, beloved, while the catechism gets it wrong in that it doesn't give us a real explanation of the word coveting, at least it does get something else right. What? Well, it gets right the fact that, in a way, this Tenth Commandment is a key to all the other commandments of God. For what does it teach us but to look deeper, not just with respect to the Tenth Commandment, but with respect to every one of God's commandments? And as a matter of fact, is that not what the Lord Jesus himself does, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount? He takes commandment after commandment, law after law, precept after precept, and he shows that each one of them has a deeper meaning and application. He quotes the sixth commandment and says that it's not just about the outward deed of murder, but it's also about the causes of murder, things like anger and and lust and envy and, and revenge and rage. All those things that boil and simmer in our hearts. And he quotes the seventh commandment and explains this is not simply about sexual actions. But it's also about lust. And about eyesight that's gone awry. And he deals with the third commandment and with human vows. And he shows that such words cannot be used lightly and denied Conveniently. Indeed, beloved, it's no wonder that in question 114, the catechism asks very pointedly, but can those converted to God? In other words, we're not speaking about unbelievers, we're speaking about the converted. Can they keep these commandments perfectly? And you know, if we have an outward superficial understanding of the law, of the commandments, then the answer would be yes. And truly it is yes for many people. The late Reverend D. James Kennedy pioneered an evangelism approach that began with asking unbelievers the question, if you were to die tonight, why should God let you into his heaven? Well, you know what the answer is of most people? Because I'm good. Because I'm a nice guy. Because I live a good and a decent life. The catechism, however, gives a different answer. It says that even the holiest of people have only a small beginning of this new obedience. In other words, all of those people who think, and their legion, I'm all right, you're all right, we're all all right, isn't it nice? Have it wrong. We're only all right if we skim the surface of God's law. But the moment we go deeper and wider, we're in trouble. 
First commandment. I do not put God first in all of my desires, deeds, and affections. Or do I? Or how many people reserve that for hockey? Second commandment. I do not worship him truly in every respect, every day, in all circumstance. On Sunday, I would rather sleep than worship. Third commandment, I do not utter his name with care and defend his name with zeal, nor do I turn off the television or the videos when his name is blasphemed. Fourth commandment, I do not always honor and regard his day as holy. Often he'll just have to do with one hour instead of one day. And fifth commandment, I, I do not obey my parents and all those in authority over me properly and fully. After all, what do they know? And the sixth commandment, my life is not devoid of anger, revenge, and hatred. There are some people in this life that I would love to punch out. The seventh commandment, I do not give my spouse the love, the time, the sensitivity that he or she deserves. Because sometimes I find other people more attractive. Beloved, do I have to go on? Are you brutes for punishment? The catechism is right. Even the holiest of people have only a small beginning of this obedience. And you know the kind of obedience it's talking about is talking about perfect obedience, about keeping these commandments perfectly. Oh, and if you think you do that, I'd love to talk to you after the worship service. I'd not only love to talk with you, I'd also like to talk with your spouse and your children and your relatives and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers. And one more thing, I would like God to x-ray your heart and give me his assessment. And after that, we'll get together. And I'll give you an evaluation of the quality of your obedience. Let me tell you in advance, the results will not be good. As a matter of fact, the results will dismay you and drive you to your knees. And that's sad. But you know, it's also something else. It's, it's necessary. And why is it necessary? It's necessary in order to drive you to Christ. For think about it. If you are of the faulty opinion that you can obey all of these commandments perfectly, fully, completely, then you do not need Christ. Then you don't need a Savior then you can save yourself. And one more thing, then you don't need the Holy Spirit either. 
Why should he bother to do his great and transforming powerful work in you when you are a true do-it-yourselfer? And he's not needed. And he's superfluous, redundant, obsolete. But surely we know in our heart of hearts that none of this is true. You and I know what lives in our hearts, don't we? In spite of all of our pretensions and window dressing, and really it's not good. It reminds you of what the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans 7, this war that goes on. I want to do the good, but the good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil I don't want to do, I do, and so forth. We know what lives in our hearts. You know, even as the children of God, we know how to hate and to rebel, and to lust, and to steal, and to be jealous, and to covet. In short, we need a Savior. And a true understanding of the law of God will drive us straight to Him. And this means that today, it will drive us to look up. But where is Christ today? He's not on earth. He's not in a manger. He's no longer a baby. No, he's in heaven. And he is there as man and God. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's invested with power and authority. Yes, he's working still. He's working on the transformation and the perfection of his children. You know, every church needs a sign. And the sign should say, God, the Son, at work. So, beloved, look up to him. Up to Him in faith and trust. Look up to Him and seek from Him the forgiveness of all of your sins. Look up to Him and lay hold of His righteousness. Look up to Him and pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit. For then truly that covetous heart of yours and of mine will get transformed. Step by step, degree by degree, little by little, until finally, finally it is whole and healthy and perfect. A perfect heart for a perfect Lord in His perfect world. What a gift. What a pleasure. Amen. I don't often add a P.S. to the sermon, but I realize that some of you at this point may be asking yourself, 
Well, if Lord's Day 44 is somewhat deficient, what should it look like? Now, I'm not on par with the authors of the Catechism, but maybe something like this. What does God forbid in the Tenth Commandment? God forbids all those desires of the heart that lead us to lust after our neighbor's wife, property, and reputation, and so rob him of his happiness and destroy his life. What does God require in the Tenth Commandment that I treasure all of his gifts, learn to be content with all that he gives me, and so live a life that honors him from the heart. Again, Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.